but also to tell them that their trouble was the result of their own disobedience to Jehovah's commandments. And that if they repent, they would be restored. And this was the problems the people had with the prophets, which caused the people to turn on the prophets. This is the problem we have today, brothers and sisters. It's like you see somebody going in the wrong direction and they're hell-bent on going in that direction. And then you try to tell them that the direction they're going is going to lead to damnation and destruction. And then you try to stand in their way to keep them from going in a direction that you know is leading them to damnation and destruction. And now, because they're hell-bent on it, they plow right over you. Shalom, saints, and welcome to our verse-by-verse study of the gospel according to John. I'm your host and teacher, Arthur Bailey. In this portion of John chapter 3, we continue with the conversation between Nicodemus and Yeshua. Nicodemus says that no man can do the works and miracles that Yeshua did if Jehovah wasn't with him. Yeshua explains that you must be born again. Nicodemus wants to know how can a man be born again when he is old? Yeshua responds by saying, you are a teacher and you don't know these things. In this portion of John, we will look at the conversation Yeshua had with Nicodemus and explain what it means to be born again, the transformation power of the Word and the Spirit working in tandem with one another. The message title in this podcast is Being Born Again Explained. So, let's study. John chapter number three, and I want to read a few of these verses because we stopped last week, but if I pick up from there, it would uh, require a little bit more explaining. So I'm going to pick up in John chapter three, verse number four, and hopefully we'll move on from there. In John chapter three, in verse four, we see the context is Nicodemus. Nicodemus says unto him, how can a man be born when he is old? So we we looked last week and we saw that he came to Yeshua at night. We connected the dots and realized that timing that he came, according to chapter two, was during the Passover. And so here it is, Yeshua, his disciples, they're up in Jerusalem at the Passover. Nicodemus, a Pharisee, Nicodemus, a Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, who a teacher, as we're going to see here, of Israel, come to Yeshua And based on what we read in chapter two, the Bible tells us that many believed because they believed, they believed on his name because of the miracles they had seen. So when Nicodemus came to Yeshua, he says, no man can do these works that you do, these miracles that you do if Jehovah wasn't with you. And so Messiah says to him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. So he instantly transitioned the conversation and he gets to the root of the matter. We also discovered last week that Nicodemus was the only person, I'm sorry, John, John's gospel is the only gospel that deal with being born again. And it's interesting that Matthew, Mark, Luke, none of them, touch on this particular topic. And we asked the question, well, were they there? 
We know that Matthew, Mark, Luke last week mentioned Joseph of Arimathea who came and took the body of Messiah down from the cross as they had inquired of a Pilate for his body and that Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea came together. So those two came together to take the body of Messiah down and to put it in the unmarked tomb. Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mentions Joseph, but none of them mentions Nicodemus. And so this in itself is cause for concern. As we talked about last week, did Matthew, Mark, and Luke Talk to John and say, well, since you're going to put Nicodemus in your gospel, we won't put it in ours. Did John, as some scholars say, wrote John because Matthew, Mark and Luke had left some things out that he thought was important. And as we look at how we got our Bible and how it was put together. And even for those of us who have been raised up in church or who walked away or who have been evangelized, we know that during evangelism community or people who evangelize, they want us to read the book of John before we read any other book in the Bible. At least that's how I was trained. And so how could such an important topic of being born again, as we talked about last week, that there are individuals like Billy Graham and evangelists of old who have built their entire ministry on John's gospel and the encounter of Nicodemus with John 3.16 being the foundation. And so it begs the question, what does it mean to be born again? And why did the other disciples or apostles or writers neglect to deal with the subject of being born again? And what did Yeshua mean when he had this encounter with Nicodemus? We've also discovered and discussed the fact that when it came down to the first century, it wasn't until about 55 AD that the first book of what we know today as the New Testament was written. So from the time of Messiah's crucifixion and ascension to about 55 AD, there is no such thing as a New Testament book. We understand this. In fact, the first century community didn't have a New Testament. They only had letters or writings that they went about teaching from or discussing and that the Salvation, the power of the Holy Spirit, miracles, signs, wonders, healings manifested in the lives of these individuals so powerfully without a New Testament. And so many who have the New Testament have no power. Now, that's an indictment, especially on individuals who want to disregard the Old Testament focus and build their lives on the New Testament when Old Testament people in first century demonstrated the power of the Holy Spirit, manifested miracle signs and wonders, the gifts of the Spirit. And today we got both Old Testament, New Testament, preachers galore, sermons up to wazoo and people 
with no power. We've been given authority. We've been given power. And it is another example of the fact that people who are supposed to be walking by faith with signs and wonders are now walking by sight and putting their dependency on specific individuals who may demonstrate the gifts of the Spirit and call them the super generals of the faith, the mighty men of God, when these signs are supposed to follow all who believe. Every believer who have the Holy Spirit is supposed to manifest the gifts of the Spirit have the fruit of the Spirit produced in their lives, and we are supposed to walk in authority and in power. So something is seriously lacking with churches almost on every corner, New Testament books of the Bible in pretty much everybody's house. And remember, during the time of Yeshua and during the time of the first century, to get access to a Torah scroll or to get access to the word of Jehovah, you had to go to a place that actually had the word of Jehovah where people could read from. But today, the average Christian has two or three Bibles, not to mention we got access to I don't know how many versions of the Bible. <laughs> and yet, the power that we're supposed to manifest is sorely lacking. Nicodemus says to him, verse four, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Yeshua answered, verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of Elohim. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind bloweth where it listeth, and thou hearest the sound thereof, but canst not tell whence it cometh and whether it goeth. So is every one that is born of the Spirit. And here's where things start taking a turn. Nicodemus answered and said unto him, How can these things be? Yeshua answered and said unto him, Art thou a master of Israel? And knowest not these things? So he asked a question, and Yeshua responds to a question. Is like, what? It would be like a fire truck stop you on the street to get direction to the fire. It's like, why are you guys out here? You're supposed to know where the fire is. You've been dispatched. Nicodemus was supposed to know the word. Why? Because he was a teacher. He was a teacher of Israel, and Yeshua says, you are a teacher, you are a master, you are a teacher, and you don't know these things? So what is it that Nicodemus is supposed to know? You see, when he asked the question of how can a man be born again of water and spirit, and Yeshua had said to him, which is what prompted the question, I say unto thee, except a man be born of water and of the spirit, and that of, as you can see in, in uh, King James's italics, which means that it was one of those words added. So it's, man be born of water and the spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of Elohim. 
Now, those of you who remember me doing the teaching on the kingdom of Elohim or the kingdom of Elohim is within you. Remember, we talked about the kingdom is not physical. It's not at this point, a physical place. And Yeshua was saying that it is in us. What brings the kingdom in us is because the king, and and this is where it gets really interesting. I was thinking this morning as to how to try to give some kind of imagery because today people have a tendency to focus on the person, Jesus, the person, Yeshua. They've got the image of Yeshua. People want to say, well, you know, he's white. Well, he's black. Well, he's, he's a Jew. He's, he's all these things. And in the conversation, they talk about the Messiah as a person. When we started this teaching in going through John, before the person Yeshua was, the word was. And the word became the person. You see, the word became flesh, but the word existed before the flesh person, Yeshua. And people have a tendency to focus on the person, Yeshua, not the word, Yeshua. He is the word. And so now the argument becomes, you know, all these ridiculous things about personal relationship with Jesus, the person, you know, everybody's got, you know, not everybody, people got their pictures of him, their images of him. The Catholics made a huge issue out there. We got probably, I've seen at least six, seven different images. I was riding down South Boulevard, as I said one day. And I saw this one car with this woman. Obviously, she must have been Catholic because she had candles in the back part of her back dashboard or whatever you call that. And then she had about about four different pictures of Jesus. It's like, well, which one is he? He's all of them. And so that becomes the focus. We need to take our eyes off of the image the person per se, and put our eyes on the word. So when Yeshua said, except you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, what is he saying? Except you eat this word. You see, in order to be born again, there's going to need to be an eating of the flesh and eating of the blood and drinking of the blood. The flesh and the blood is the word. Yeshua wasn't saying, kill me and eat me. No, he was saying, don't focus on this flesh and blood me. Focus on what I am, what I was. I am the word. I am the truth. I am the way. I am the life. I am the light of, when he's talking about the light of the world, the people would know that the psalmist said, his word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The word is light. And we're supposed to be the light of the world. In other words, just as the word became flesh, we too, who are supposed to be the word embodied to where now, what do we do? We proclaim his word. Why? Because the word is in us. The word is 
who we are. How can you have conversation as a believer and the word don't come forth? What's in you is going to come out of you. What's in you is what's going to come out of you. And so people want to get all technical when Yeshua's talking about food. It's not what goes in a man that makes him unclean. It's what comes out of him. Well, if the word is clean and everything is unclean, then when you're talking about the word, what is it demonstrating? You're being cleansed. The word is cleansing. And what is it cleansing you from? Flesh. It's cleansing you from carnality. Oh, it's going to get deep here in a moment. To be born of water and the spirit is to be cleansed by the word. Well, how can you be cleansed by the word if you don't put time in the word? You got to bathe in the word. You got to eat the word. You got to sleep the word. You got to meditate on the word. You got to walk by the word. You got to live by the word in spirit, of course, because this born again process requires water, which is the word we're going to see, and spirit, word and spirit. You can't have the word without the spirit and you can't have the spirit without the word. They work together in tandem. I mean, Yeshua responds with the question, verse 10. Yeshua answered and said unto him, are you a master of Israel and knoweth not these things? And so Yeshua's question implies Nicodemus should have known what he was saying about this born again process And if that be the case, how would Nicodemus have known? That's the issue. The phrase born again today is used or is used in three places in the New Testament, twice in John. And we saw that last week. And again, we read some of this this week. And then first Peter, first Peter says being born again. Now, this is letting the cat out of the bag, if you would, if it gives you an insight into where I'm going. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible. How? By the word. By the word of Elohim, which liveth and abideth forever. His word is alive. It lives and abide forever. Now, the way we know we're eating the word or drinking the word is the word begins to transform us. The word cleanses our mouth. The word cleanses and purifies our heart. The word cleanses our thoughts. We're not thinking ungodly anymore because the word is God. And so when we eat the word, we're taking God on. He and I, he and you is becoming one. The more I devour the word, the more I search the word, the more I study the word, the more I begin to realize what my conduct and my life daily is supposed to look like. And when I know the word and I act contrary to the word, the spirit convicts me. If I don't know the word and I'm acting contrary to the word, the spirit is trying to convict me, but I may not have a reference point for my conviction. And so everybody is living and doing and going according to their own way, believing what they think is right. 
And this is where much of the religious world is, which is why we have so many different denominational beliefs and ideologies, because denominations are all seemingly teaching their aspect, their doctrine, their statement of faith, their belief system. And typically what it is, is that people find a favorite part of scripture and make that their soapbox. Like the Pentecostals, well, you got to be, you know, speaking in tongues. Speaking in tongues is the least of the gifts, according to the Bible. The real sign of the Holy Spirit is one's ability to hear from the Almighty and speak for him. Why? Because that's what Joel said. It says, you know, the Holy Spirit is going to come on us. God is going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. Sons and daughters will do what? Prophesy. That's what they'll do. They'll prophesy. They'll have the ability to hear and to speak for him. But the Pentecostals took it and said, well, you know, the example is, is that, of course, when the Holy Spirit came upon them, they spoke in tongues. Yeah, but there was also interpretation. The people who heard them heard it in their own language. And Paul wrote that tongues and interpretation equals prophecy. So we see prophetic fulfillment of Joel taking place through tongues and interpretation, not just speaking in tongues. And so this word is what is supposed to bring about the born again process. Today, the you must be born again phrase is interpreted by people saying, well, you must get saved. Well, how do you do that? Ask Jesus to come into your life. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the son of God. He's the man. He's the one sent by God. Well, how do I know that? Because you said it. What do people know about Jesus? What have you read about him? See, you may have watched a few Jesus movies done in Hollywood. But what do you know about the man who before he became the man was the word And after he ascended and sat at the right hand of the Almighty is the Word. The Word existed before the man and the Word is still with us. And what is he looking for? When he comes back, he's looking for people who is the Word. He's looking for people who've allowed the Word to cleanse, the Word to deliver, the Word to separate. To get rid of the wrinkles and the spots and the blemishes. Why? Because we're all wrinkled. We're all spotted. We're all blemished. We were born that way. And the only way you're going to get unspotted and unwrinkled and unblemished is that the word, which became flesh, do a work on you. And when that word started doing a work on you, guess what? This changes. You, you can... Take off the mini skirt and put on a long gown. But if you still got lust in your heart, the long gown is just a cover up. You can cover up your legs and cover up your arms and cover your hair and cover your face. But that doesn't make you sanctify. What sanctifies you is, is that word living in you. If that word is living in you, then it's going to manifest itself. Otherwise, all you got is religion. 
And religion don't save nobody. It's the word saved. People say, well, Jesus saved. Yeah, but he is what? The word. Hallelujah. Other people say, well, you know, you just give your heart to Jesus. How do I do that? How do I give my heart to him? What is my heart? It's like, you know, when you're talking to an English person or you're talking to a natural minded person or you're talking to a human being, give your heart to Jesus. Give your heart to Jesus. If I give my heart to Jesus, it's like Nicodemus. It's like, how do I, how do you be born again? Do you go back in your mama's womb? How do I give my heart? Do I rip my heart out of my chest and, and give it to who is, how do I give him my heart? Because what happens is that the heart is not this that beats and pumps blood. It's the inward man. What he's saying is that when you give your inward self to him, then you are now taking the word on the inward man and the inward man is affecting what men see, the outward man. Are you getting that? See, when the word goes into your inward man, it transforms the inward man that manifests itself in the outward man and people see a change. Make a decision for Christ. That's another way people explain. Well, you got to make a decision, brother. You got to make a decision. Make a decision. What do you mean make a decision? Well, give your heart to Jesus. Give my heart to Jesus. Yeah, get saved. Okay. I give my heart to Jesus. I make a decision for Christ. I get saved. Now, how do I live? How do I live? Well, brother, <laughs> just watch us. Really? Just watch some of the saints. You got to be around the saints. That's why you need to be in church. You need to be in church. You need to be in church for what? You need to go to church. Go to church for what? Because I went to church, did all that. I watched the saints. And I had to realize within myself that the way I'm seeing some saints live and what I'm reading, there's a problem. So in order for me to live out my faith in the church, I had to close the book. Because if I start taking this book serious and start asking questions about what's written in the book, you know what happens is that I start judging people. God forbid you judge people. Well, so I can't read this book and be in church because I know, I know the organ player is, I know the, the, the singers are, and the Bible says they shouldn't be in here. That's what this book says. In fact, the book says that if a man lies with another man, you're supposed to put him to death. And y'all not only aren't putting him to death, you're giving him a microphone. You got lesbians and homosexuals and bisexuals and fornicators and adulterers running the place. So, I can't read this book and stay in this environment. So I either stay in this environment and disregard the book or the book is going to drive me out. That's what's going to happen. 
Matter of fact, I found out that it is easy to be in church as long as you don't read your Bible. Because when you start reading your Bible, it causes some problems for you. And, you know, we don't want problems. So the more I read this book, the more critical I become. And it's not that I'm critical of people. I become critical of my own conduct. Now, here's how this thing works. Once I become critical of my own conduct, I start correcting my conduct. Once I start correcting my conduct, in order for me to stay corrected, I got to start correcting the people who are conducting themselves around me. And now you're being critical. And now you're being judgmental. Well, the Bible says judge lest you be judged. And if you judge, make sure you judge according to the right standard. It's one thing for me to judge according to my belief systems. It's another thing for me to judge according to his word, because first I have to judge myself. So here's the deal. If I judge myself and my conduct to be contrary to what is written, and I'm around people who confess to be believers, but their conduct is not contrary to what is written according to how I've assessed our conduct to be according to what is written, then how do I reconcile being in relationship with people that according to my own conduct I've been convicted is not right while engaging in individuals whose conduct is contrary to my conviction. You see, birds of a feather flock together. You'll find that transgender people hang out with transgender people. They don't hang out with straight people. And straight people don't necessarily hang out with unstraight people and religious people don't necessarily hang out with unreligious people and holy people don't necessarily hang out with unholy people. And father says, listen, you are my people. Here's my word. Don't hang out with those people. That's what he said. I didn't make this stuff up. Don't let your sons marry them. Don't let your daughters marry them. Don't worship like they worship, be separate. And if that wasn't enough, in the New Testament, he says, come out from among them and be ye separate. So we got all this stuff from the beginning of the book to the end of the book that many in religion have chosen to disregard. And if we're going to be in religion, then we have to disregard this stuff too because the moment you start taking what is written serious, we use the word set apart, sanctified. What happens? The word sets you apart. That's what it does. But what did Yeshua mean and how should we interpret this conversation in the context it is given? If Yeshua expected Nicodemus to know this, why? How would Nicodemus know what Yeshua is talking about if he's hearing this for the very first time? Nicodemus is a teacher, a ruler, a Pharisee of Israel. And so in verse 10, Nicodemus again says, I mean, Yeshua says to Nicodemus, art thou a master, a teacher of Israel, and you 
know not these things? It's a question. Nicodemus is a teacher, but he does not know about being born again, although Yeshua implied he should have known these things. And the question is how? And another question is that if he doesn't know these things that Yeshua is talking about, what is he teaching? The answer is found in the prophet Ezekiel's writings. The prophet Ezekiel was not only a prophet, but also was a priest. Ezekiel had the difficult task as most prophets, and that was to encourage the people in their times of trouble, but also to tell them that their trouble was the result of their own disobedience to Jehovah's commandments. And that if they repent, they would be restored. And this was the problems the people had with the prophets, which caused the people to turn on the prophets. This is the problem we have today, brothers and sisters. It's like you see somebody going in the wrong direction and they're hell bent on going in that direction. And then you try to tell them that the direction they're going is going to lead to damnation and destruction. And then you try to stand in their way to keep them from going in a direction that you know is leading them to damnation and destruction. And now, because they're hell-bent on it, they plow right over you. As a parent, you're trying to share with your children, teaching them, training them up the way they're supposed to go, correcting them and disciplining them because you love them. And yet they want to disregard their instruction because, of course, you know, when we were children, we were smarter than our parents. And the children today think they are smarter than their parents. They know better, but it's like they don't know better because their actions seems to indicate that they know better than the parent who's giving them the instructions. And what is the issue? Just like the people of Jehovah felt that he didn't want them to have fun and enjoy their lives, people today think parents are just trying to keep them from having fun. It's like, I want you to have fun. Jehovah incorporated in his word. I want you all to have fun. I want you to party. I want you to eat. I want you to drink. I want you to be merry. You can have your strong drinks. All I'm saying to you is do it in my presence. See, when you do your stuff in the presence of of the father, you are aware of this presence and therefore become innately aware of your own conduct. So what does that do? Because I'm in his presence and he's given me the permission to do these things, I need to restrain myself so that I don't go beyond what is written. If I want to go beyond what is written, what do I have to do? I have to pull myself out of his presence and hide so I can go as far as I want to go. And this is exactly what children do when it comes down to their parents. They pull themselves out of their presence and hide from them and then lie to cover up. That's exactly what the people of Jehovah was doing. The other issue is because the people, well, let me, man, I, I'm not going to get through this message today. The prophet Ezekiel was not only a prophet, but a priest. And he had this difficult task of telling the people that the behavior that you, the captivity that you're experiencing today is not because the almighty was mad at you. 
It's the result of you doing what he told you not to do. You see, what if you do if your child disobeys your command? If you give them instructions and they don't follow the instructions, what do you do? Because see, here's the deal. If you don't do nothing, they're going to go further. If you discipline them, they're going to think you mean. If you want to be their friends, you certainly don't want them to think you mean. So you may just talk. If children see that all you is going to do is talk, then eventually they're going to say, oh, well, there she go again. There you go again. And then they may start mimicking. Uh, yeah. Because mm-hmm. why? All you is a talker. But if you take that belt and put it on that on some skin, they know that you're not just a talker. They know that you're going to back your words up with action. So when the children of Israel rebelled against the Almighty who blessed them, who delivered them, who saved them, who protected them, provided for them, fought their battles, healed them of their diseases, and they're going to rebel against him. And he's like, I got to do something here. Think about it, brothers and sisters. Every captivity Israel went into, Jehovah brought the people to take them into captivity. The Assyrians, the Babylonians, the Egyptians, the Romans, all of them, they could not bother the people because the the great protector protected them. The only way an enemy could get to Jehovah's people is that the Almighty was not standing guard. And why would he not stand guard over his people? See, he didn't just let the Babylonians come in. He raised them up and sent them. And I'm going to tell you something. Father has this way of saying, listen, here's my word. Obey my word and have life. Obey my word and prosper. Obey my word and be blessed. You'll be blessed coming in, blessed going out. Whatever you put your hands to will be blessed. You know, there's only one logical conclusion that I can come to And that is the people didn't want to be blessed. Now, I'm going to tell you something else, parent, because I know that there's some bad parents out there. But most parents are good parents. I know there's some neglectful parents out there. I was reading a news article yesterday, and this woman who had her children ended up leaving her daughter one of her children in the, in the hot car for over 45 minutes. And she called 911 for them to come get her. And they arrested her for neglect. But she said these words. She said, how could I do that? And then she went on and said, I'm one of those parents who, when I read about parents leaving their children in a car, To me, that's a bad parent. And now she's saying, I see how easy it is to do. You know, we we have eight children. And there was another family back in Michigan that, that had seven children. And 
every day when we went to service or we went out, we had to do a head count. Because with that many children, sometimes you can leave one or two behind. <laughs> and you know, y'all laughing. Some of y'all, but you know, you get halfway home and realize that you're missing somebody. Now you want to do a head count. And you got to turn back around and go get them. Has that ever happened to anybody other than me? Come on, be honest. Uh, and you only got what? Two. But this other couple, man, it's like almost every week they were leaving somebody. The point is, is that father now, because of the disobedience of his children, he now is forced. They forced Jehovah to deal with them. Before he did it, he kept warning them. He kept, now I'm going to get you. Now I'm going to get you. Now I'm going to get you. Now, you know, you know, you know, and he, he sent people and he sent them messages. And it's like, all of a sudden, his word became a broken record. Just like with some of our children. It's like you're on repeat. Then heard it, done it. You ain't going to do nothing. And then once you done had enough. They just make a spectacle to keep you from following through on what you are about to do. And if you don't follow through, guess what? It's another example. You ain't going to do nothing. All I got to do is behave like this and you'll stop. You see. And father had to show his people over and over and over again. And you know what? Even today. There is a judgment coming. But some of the judgment we deal with is the results of our own behaviors, the results of our own actions. And so imagine here it is. The people of Israel is in captivity and father is sending them prophets. He's raising up prophets. Matter of fact, some of the prophets he allowed Ezekiel was one of those prophets who it seems that before Israel went into before the destruction of the temple, he was in captivity or he was prophesying seven years. And then after another 15 or so years. But the point is, is that Ezekiel is prophesying to a people who are in bondage because of their own doing. Can you imagine trying to tell people, see, I told you so. You see, I told you so. See, I told you so. But it's not over yet. There's still hope. And here's what Father wants to do. He wants to deliver you out of bondage and bring you back into the land. And he wants to do all of these wonderful things. But you got to remember how you got here. Lest you find yourself here again. And so the people didn't want to hear this stuff. It's like, man, I, we know we messed up. We know we, we just tired of you telling us we messed up. Shut up. Or you won't shut up. We will shut you up. And that's what they did. They killed the prophets. Because people don't want you to remind them of the mess they made that got them in the bed they're in. And if you don't remind them, how do they learn and keep from getting there again? 
Because if we don't learn from our lessons, we will repeat them. And we will continue to repeat them. And we've got this history spanning almost 7,000 years of repetitious disobedience by the people of Jehovah. We're no different than they. The message Ezekiel was given to tell the people of Israel as they were in captivity focused on Israel as the holy people of the holy temple, the holy city, and the holy land. Ezekiel prophesied to Israel about, he said to them, by defiling their worship, they had rendered themselves unclean and defiled the temple and defiled the land and the city. That was one of the reasons. And think about this for a moment. They were in disobedience. They had added to the commandments. But one of the reasons why they were taken into Babylonian captivity is because they never allowed the land to rest. He's saying, listen, as an agricultural people, six years, you are to plant, you are to sow, and you are to reap. The seventh year, you don't plant. You eat from the land, whatever it produces, but you let the land rest. And they were in Babylon for 70 years. For each year, they did not allow the land to rest. A simple command of letting the land rest, honoring the Sabbath day, honoring the commandments. So the length of their captivity was simply based on the fact that they had not let the land rest. That's not the reason why they were taken into Babylon, but that was the determining factor of how long they were to be in Babylon. You see, Father is going to uphold his word, brothers and sisters. And as Solomon said, the whole duty of man is to fear him and to keep his commandments. The best thing you and I can do, and this is the whole born again process, because the born again process is a process. It's not an event. So Ezekiel prophesied as a result of their defilement, Jehovah had to withdraw himself from them and judge his people with national destruction, thus the Babylonian captivity. Israel had made the mistake of thinking that Jehovah was confined to the holy place in the holy temple in the holy city in the holy land to the holy people. So they made a big if issue out of the temple. And what father did by allowing the temple to be destroyed is like, listen, I told you all from day one, I'm not dwelling in a building made with hands. What makes you all think that that building houses me? I show up there, but it doesn't house me. And let me tell you something. There are people today. I remember growing up. I heard that's God's house. That's God's house. The house of God so much. So I actually thought God lived in the building. So how I conducted myself around the building was different than how I conducted myself away from the building. This is the house of God. This is the house of God. This is why when we came in this building, says, listen, this is not a temple. This is a space. The only thing that makes this space holy is you. When you leave here, this is a building. This is a room. Now, we do all we know to do to keep the defilements out. We don't bring unclean things in. 
those kinds of things that we know can defile and we try to keep the place clean and the air breathable. We don't bring in stuff that is not clean. And that's just to keep a place for people, you who are coming. You is, who ma- is what makes this place holy. We're two or more gathered together in his name. If you're not here, he's not here. He's where you are. Now, he watches over this place. Why? Because we've asked him to. We've prayed a hedge of protection around it. We've anointed the doors in the, in the property. We've walked the land. And we ask him to watch over it and to keep it from vandalism and from thievery and people breaking in and destruction of property and folks coming on the property when we're not here smoking their, their whatever they do and having their father showed me, said, there's a, there's a couple out there in your parking lot and they, that's uh, an adulterous relationship. So I walked out of my office and I started walking toward those people and they drove off. I don't want adultery committed in our parking lot. I don't want fornication being committed in our parking lot. I don't want to come around and find prophylactics. So we want this place to be a place where, you know, it's kept for the people of Jehovah. But this place is not holy. What makes it holy is our assembly. I mean, so the people felt, and I remember when I went to Israel the first time, it's like, oh, I'm going to the Holy Land. I'm going to the Holy Land. I'm going to have an experience with the Holy One. And the fact is, is that I don't have to go to the Holy Land to have a holy experience with the Holy One. But this is the sale that is being sold to people which is not much different than what has been sold to the Muslims. You got to go to Mecca at least one time in your life to be a bona fide Muslim. And you got Christians and Messianics who feel they got to go to Israel at least once in their lives. It's like, who sold you that? Well, at one point when the temple was there and the people were responsible for coming up, to the place of worship, but it wasn't just in Jerusalem. It was in Shechem. It was in the wilderness, wherever the tabernacle was. But the almighty is, I'm not present. He's in your home when you're there. He's on your job when you're there. He's in your car when you're there. He's wherever you are. So by virtue, brothers and sisters, wherever you go, that space become holy. Why? Because you holy. Your presence makes a difference. Unless your presence don't make a difference. And if your presence don't make a difference around people in darkness, if your presence don't make a difference around sinners, something's wrong with your presence. That's just the reality of it. Now, I'm going to tell you, these types of messages don't build churches. But it certainly builds people. It builds character. And I'm not trying to build a church. I'm trying to prepare people for the coming of the Messiah. Whether you expect him to come or not, he's coming. And it would be disastrous for me 
to lead a people who aren't prepared when he comes. What does that say about me? What does that say about any minister? You don't know who called you? You don't know what you're supposed to be doing? Supposed to be equipping the saints, perfecting the saints for the work of ministry. Why? Because all of us have been given a ministry. We all have a role to play in this. And we should all be looking for the return of the master who promised he's coming back unless we don't believe it. Today, many make that same mistake. They think that they have to go to the Holy Land to have an encounter with the Holy One. And that although Jehovah is omnipresent, he's most present in the Holy Land. He's most present in the presence of those who honor his presence. I'll say that again. He's most present in the presence of those who honor his presence. You don't honor his presence, guess what? Ichabod. Nicodemus and the rulers of his day was making the same mistake by not recognizing they were defiled and that the temple Herod had built would also be destroyed as the temple Solomon had built. Jehovah spoke to the prophet and told him why and what he was going to do. The why was for his name because Israel had profaned his name among the heathen. Ezekiel 36, let's get through this and then we'll, we'll bring this to a close. Therefore, verse 22, say unto the house of Israel, thus saith Jehovah Elohim, I do not this for your sakes, O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went. Now, what Ezekiel is going to reveal to us is this whole idea of being born again. Remember, when Yeshua was talking about being born again, John, there was no such thing as the book of John. And he expected Nicodemus to know what he was talking about. So if there was no New Testament, how could he expect Nicodemus to know what he's talking about if all Nicodemus had was the Old Testament? That shouldn't be a head scratcher. He says, I will sanctify my great name, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. And the heathen shall know that I am Jehovah, saith Jehovah Elohim, when I shall be sanctified in you before their eyes. The what indicates how he was going to cleanse, sanctify the people. Verse 24, for I will take you from among the heathen. Now, Nicodemus is speaking to the people in captivity. And he's saying, I'm going to take you out and gather you out of all the countries and will bring you into your own land. Then, and here's the key word, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. See, this is the being born of water piece. You'll see here in a moment. And you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you. And here's the spirit part. And a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh. And I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. And here's what the spirit is going to do, brothers and sisters. His spirit is going to cause you to walk in my statues 
and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your Elohim. Now, let me read this again because he says in verse 27, I will put whose spirit in them? His. He says, I will put my spirit in you. Now, this is what Joel was saying. Listen, that in the last days, he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. The Bible tells us when we receive the Holy Spirit, we receive power. Where is this power coming from? From him. So when we receive the Holy Spirit, whose spirit is it? His spirit. Is his spirit going to work contrary to his judgments, his statutes, and, and his law? He says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you shall keep my judgments and do them. Remember, not doing this is what caused them to be in captivity in the first place. And you shall dwell in the land that I gave your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your Elohim. Now this goes along with what Paul says. He says, come out from among them, be separate and touch not the unclean things and I will receive you, says Jehovah. And you will be my people and I will be your Elohim. Come out from among them. Touch not the unclean things. Why? Because the unclean things cause you to be unclean. And the clean one is not going to dwell in the midst of uncleanness. Verse 29. I will also save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the corn and will increase it and lay no famine upon you. So I'm going to heal your land. Then shall you remember your own evil ways. In other words, brothers and sisters, don't forget, don't forget, don't forget what got you here. See, father delivered the people out of bondage, gave them the laws so they wouldn't go back in the bondage as long as they kept the law, which was called the perfect law of freedom. James says it's the perfect law of liberty. He gave a law of freedom to a people he had delivered out of bondage so they wouldn't go back into bondage. The law is not bondage. It's designed to keep us from going into bondage. So the church can tell all this is stories based on its interpretations or misinterpretations thereof. And why is he doing this? He says, well, then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. What is he saying? See, some of us have experienced this. Some of us have experienced after we've been delivered, after we've been healed, after our eyes have been opened, and we realize we don't deserve this relationship he has made with us. If I got what I deserved, I'd be miserable. I'd be dead. I would be in big trouble. And when I think like that, 
I have to say to myself, why would I be in big trouble? Why would I be miserable? Why would I be thinking that way? Because I know what kind of person I was. I know what kind of person I lived. I know my behavior, even the stuff nobody else knows. I know the stuff that I did in secret. I know the stuff that I lied about, the stuff that I covered up. I know the pain that I've caused, the hurt that I've done. And yet he had mercy on me. In spite of me, he saved me. In spite of all that, he delivered me. Oh, what a wretched man I was. And I don't want to forget it. And that's what he's saying. Then shall you remember, unless you forget. Then you shall remember. See, I remember my evil. It don't bring me into condemnation anymore. The wrong that I've done, the, the stuff that I've done, it doesn't condemn me. I'm not finding myself asking him to forgive me again and again and again. I'm remembering what he has forgiven me for. I'm rejoicing in the fact that in spite of all this mess I made, he saved me. And then if that wasn't enough, he told me to go and testify. He says, your testimony will help you overcome. See, the moment I stopped testifying about the wretched mess he delivered me from, the moment I forget the wretched mess he delivered me from, and I may turn and go back to it. Because see, let me tell you something. When we were doing that wretched mess we were doing, we know we were doing wrong, but there was a part of us that enjoyed the stuff we were doing. And all of that wretchedness I was doing, there were moments of pleasure. And here's what will happen. You'll remember the pleasure, peace, and not remember all the other stuff. See, the devil is slick like that. Remember? Remember? You remember what we used to, and you know, it's like, yeah, I remember, but I also remember this. Oh, man, why you got to be Debbie Downer? Why is it every time we talk, you want to take us back to the negative? Well, the negative was a part of the positive. And in the midst of the positive, the negative was there. And if I ignore the negative that was part of the positive, then I'll long for the positive, forget the negative until I find myself in there. And now all that stuff. See, and here's the thing. This is one of the things NANA recognized that when you relapse, when you go back to drinking, it's like you never quit. When you go back to drugs, it's like you never quit. When you go back to sin, it's like you never quit. And the same devil that deceived you to go back is now condemning you because you came back. And now you're under condemnation. And saying, how can I go back to him when I was with him and I walked away from him and I knew better? Why would he take me back? I'll tell you why. Because that's just the kind of God he is. That's who he is. He's not the one that's trying to squash you every time you mess up. He has mercy. He's long-suffering. He's gracious. Now, with all of that, don't stay there. You need to get up out of there with the quickness. Because the longer you wallow in filth, the filthier you become. 
And so he says, then shall you remember your own evil ways and your doings that were not good and shall loathe yourselves in your own sight for your iniquities and for your abominations. Not for your sake do I this, saith Jehovah Elohim, be it known unto you, be ashamed and confound for your own ways. O house of Israel, thus saith Jehovah Elohim, in the day that I shall have cleansed you from all your iniquities, I will also cause you to dwell in the cities and the wastes shall be built, and the desolate land shall be tilled. Whereas it lay desolate in the sight of all that passed by. And they shall say this land that was desolate is become like the garden of Eden and the waste and desolate and ruined cities are become fenced and are inhabited. And this is what should be said about you by the people who knew your desolation. They should look at you and say, man, wow, I remember you when, but look at you now. The people had defiled themselves by sin, which was disobeying Jehovah's commandments. Sin equals violations of the commandments. Jehovah's word was and is what Jehovah commanded and his commandments has not passed away. Jehovah's commandments are not dead just as he is not dead. Jehovah and his word is one. The only way to deal with the defilement of sin is by recognizing it, confessing it and repenting so we can be washed or cleansed. John says in 1 John 1, 8, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And here's that part, cleanse us. Why? Because cleanse, sin dirties you. Sin defiles you. But when we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and then to do what? Cleanse us. How does he cleanse us? The word was and is the cleansing agent. Apart from the word, the Holy Spirit is limited to do the work of the Holy Spirit because of the limited knowledge of the word, which the Holy Spirit works by. The less knowledge and understanding you have of his word, the less the Holy Spirit can work in your life. Because the Holy Spirit will be working and you don't even know what's going on. Just like remember when you didn't know and you look back now and you can see how the Holy Spirit was working in your life even way back then. You didn't know and he was at work. He's been at work and he's still at work. But the way you recognize his work, the more knowledgeable you become of his word, the more you're able to recognize when he's working in you. He'll start prompting you. See. How are you going to, if you're having a conversation with someone and you're supposed to be an ambassador and ain't no word in you and you're trying to talk to somebody and give them counsel, what you going to give them? But see, if the word is in you, the Holy Spirit will bring that word up. And you'll be like, where'd that come from? Oh, it's in you. Because if it ain't in you, then you're going to give them Oprah. You're going to give them Dr. Phil and Tony Robbins or somebody. But if the word is in you, guess what you're going to give them? Because see, the Holy Spirit is bringing those things back to your remembrance. He's bringing it back. 
and you're ministering and talking and all of a sudden you start flowing. Well, you can't flow if there's no flow in you. So you got to get the flow in you. You got to get the word in you. So now the Holy Spirit is working on the database of the information that you've deposited. Like uh, the psalmist said, I have hid your word in my inward man. I meditate on your word day and night. I think on these things. I got his word in me and I'm thinking about it and I'm meditating on it. And when somebody make me angry and get under my skin and I feel like cussing, going off the deep end, I've learned to just go to the side. This was back in the day, just go in the bathroom and just cuss out loud as loud as I can in the bathroom. <laughs> And then come back out and deal with it. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about. You just scream because you got in your spirit. And now you get it out and you can go back and you can deal with it. But the more I grow, the more I put his word in me, it flushes all those bad words out. See, I get the good word in and the bad gets flushed out. It's like this cup. There comes a point to where if I keep filling this up with good and it was water in it, be- you ever notice, and this is a test, if you got a glass and you got dirty water in it and you just run a, wa- a hose in it, guess what happens? The dirty water is going to start coming out. It'll flow out the top. And pretty soon the water is clear. That's the way his word works. See, we're filthy. Apart from his word, we have no choice but to be filthy. But the more we put his word in us, the more the filth washes out of us. Just washes out. And then your mind becomes renewed. Your thinking becomes renewed. Your conversation becomes renewed. Your attitude becomes renewed. Your behavior becomes renewed. You just become a new creature. It don't happen overnight. And I'm out of time. I'm out of time. Let's see how far I can get. Well, the spirit of Elohim does not work independent of the word of Elohim. Being born of water is not about a ritual bath, baptism, or mikvah. Yeshua was saying that he, Israel, and all people are defiled and corrupt and need to be cleansed from their uncleanness by the word. Yeshua said later, Now you are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. It's the word that cleanses us. It's the word that causes us to be born again of water. That's the word that is cleansing us. This washing is where we get the word regeneration, which means new birth, and we become a new creation or new creature in Messiah. Titus says, verse 4, chapter 3, but after that, the kindness and love of Elohim, our Savior, toward man appeared not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy spirit. And so what is this washing of regeneration? This is the new birth. The washing of regeneration is the word that is cleansing us. It's bringing us into a relationship with the almighty is producing change in our lives. 
Then answered Peter, Matthew 19, 27, and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Yeshua said unto them, Verily I say unto you that you which have followed me in the regeneration, the new birth, when the of Israel and everyone that hath forsaken houses or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my niece saying forsaken houses, brothers, sisters, father, mother, wife, fire souls by obeying the truth through the spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another with a pure heart fervently. First Peter 1 23 being born again not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible by the word of Elohim, which liveth and abideth forever. That's what causes you to be born again. First Peter 24, for all flesh is as grass and all the glory of man is a flower of grass. The grass withereth and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of Jehovah endureth forever. And this is the word which by the gospel is preached unto you. Ephesians 5.25, and I'll probably close with this one. Husbands, love your wives, even as Messiah also loved the church, the ecclesia, the called out ones, the set apart one, and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. So this Water, this born of water is the word, brothers and sisters. This born again process is us eating the word, studying the word, searching the word, applying the word, living by the word, by the spirit. And you can't have one without the other. The word without the spirit is legalism. The word without the spirit is legalism. The spirit without the word is fanaticism. You need both. The spirit is what enable you to show you how to work and operate in the word. The word is a sword, but you're not supposed to be going around slicing and dicing people. It's not to be used to cut people with is to be used to grow people, to minister to people, to bring conviction. If you got to convict people, then you're trying to do the spirit's job. The Holy spirit is the conviction. We give people the word. And when we do this, brothers and sisters, this is so important. This is something that I'm, I'm still working on. I'll probably be working on the rest of my days. And that is how to keep my attitude separate from the instruction. If he's given me the word to speak, I need to remove my attitude from it. I have no business trying to minister the word with somebody that I'm angry at. How do you think that's going to come out? Now my spirit of anger has tainted the word of truth, which is supposed to bring peace. You can't fight with the word. Don't try to make people line up with the word. You share it with them. And you have to try to be as peaceable and as gentle 
as possible, which is why I believe Messiah says we have to be wise as serpents, but gentle as doves. And I'm telling you, there's been times when I know for me personally, I've tried to correct people with the word, with the bad spirit. And now I've just added to the word. I'm quoting the scripture in the King James Version, verbatim, but not with the spirit that the word was given by, with a little stink on it from me. And now we have to work at keeping us out of it, keeping our attitude out of it, separate from it, so that people now don't have attitude to deal with. They're just confronted with his word and the spirit. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. You can find more inspirational teachings and download our free ebooks on our ministry website at arthurbaileyministries.com. Please follow us on Facebook at House of Israel Arthur Bailey Ministries, on Instagram at Apostle Arthur Bailey, on Twitter at Apostle Bailey, and you can subscribe to our YouTube page at Apostle Arthur Bailey One. If you're in the Charlotte area, please come and fellowship with us. We'll do our best to make you feel right at home. Our address is on our website at the About link under Contact Us. Again, thank you for joining us, and until next time, Shalom Saints. <music>